Amen. Uh, all right, church, go ahead and have a seat, but then I'm going to ask you to say something with me for those of you who, who know. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Ready? All right. You respond if you know the drill. All right, here we go. He is risen. There we go. And if you're brand new to the whole Christianity thing, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's uh, Christianese, if you will, for Happy Easter. It's a way of us professing the greatest promise that comes to us from God, that the promise that eventually death is going to be defeated once and for all, that at some point, uh, whenever God decides, and we're going to talk about this at some length this morning, we're finally going to be at a point where we don't have to, to weep and to cry. We don't have to wander around in sorrow all the time because of, of death. And so when we, when we say that little thing, it's, it's different than an, a, like if you're learning Italian or somebody, somebody teaching you how to say that my name is so-and-so in Italian. It's much more significant than that in our, in our speak. In our speak, that is code for all the greatness of God kind of boiled up into one little phrase, one little call and response back and forth that says, okay, if you know that one, then that means you're like my people. And not just that, but you're like his people. And, and you get it. You're professing it. You're willing to say, I believe that. I was reflecting on the hidden member of our family that you guys don't know about uh, here at New Vintage Church. Uh, he lives in Olivia's room, actually. Uh, his name's Cheeto. He's the betta fish that we have. And Cheeto is uh, named Cheeto, not because he's orange, but because he's, he's a flaming hot Cheeto color. He's like a red. And he's a miracle fish. And we all have great respect for Cheeto in our house because no matter how many times we negligently forget to feed him or do whatever, this thing, not only um, does he die, We've come home on many occasions, and Cheeto is upside down, floating at the surface like fish are known to do. And then when we all, bless his heart, Cheeto finally went to go, you know, meet, meet the Lord. If there is a fish in heaven, then he'll be there. We're confident of it. And then we'll come back a day later, like typically negligent, like nobody wants to do the deed, you know. And we'll come back, and he's swimming around in the tank. And we're like, what in the world? So we have changed his name to Lazarus. I kid you not. He has died and come back to life. So if you ever come over to our house, you got to run by Cheeto's tank and uh, find out what the secret is of his many lives. But I was thinking about Cheeto and I was thinking about even Lazarus. And I was thinking, you know, fish coming back to life. I don't know if he was in a food coma or what was going on. Uh, but people don't come back to life. I know we have our little stories about the guy whose heart went dead for 60 seconds or something like that. But what we don't have are stories of people who have been crucified and then put in a tomb for three days with no water, no food, after being uh, beaten and scourged within, well, until they expired, coming back to life. And we try to make that seem like it's a light thing occasionally. We, we make movies about people being able to come back to life if they get kissed by the right person. I don't know how many of you think you're that good of a kisser. But nobody will come back to life through that means. It doesn't happen with humans. Especially humans who've been crucified by the Romans. 
who had, by the way, a 100% success rate in the cruel craft of crucifixion. Then they send Jesus into an airless tomb secured by Roman guards for three days. No one alive at the time ever claimed that the body was still there in the tomb. And he was seen by many witnesses after his resurrection. And we celebrate that today because of everything that it means. And I, for one, am thankful for Easter for all sorts of reasons. We're going to talk about a couple of them today. But, but one of them is it kind of makes everybody kind of do a Jesus check. They all have to, everybody, in America at least, will have to kind of come face to face with the Christian message and make a decision about what they're going to do with it. Even the greatest thinkers, they felt like they had to deal with it somehow. Karl Marx kind of came around and said, hey, you know, um, I'll oversimplify, but the idea that uh, what the resurrection does in Christianity in general will take people's eye off the ball and off the concerns of the real world. Freud approached Jesus and claimed that he was essentially a, a wish fulfillment source. People kind of uh, rely on him to get their needs met in various ways rather than, no, he actually exists. He just happens to meet the needs in many, many different ways. Uh, Nietzsche was a little bit more fatalistic and kind of uh, came around and said that basically the thought of Jesus, the crucified Savior, was to oversimplify his perspective for wimps. Um, figure out what you're going to do with the empty tomb today, if you're a skeptic. It's one of the beautiful things about Easter and about holidays that, are, that come around every year, is you've got to figure out, all right, do I still not believe it, uh, or do I still believe it? Each of us must decide what we're going to do with the empty tomb, and so we can approach it with enthusiasm, conviction, passion, imagination, and dedication, or we can do it with skepticism, or we can approach it with kind of a, eh, whatever. So what will you say today? What will I say? Well, I'll tell you what I'll say. I'll say that Jesus is Lord, that he is the only way to heaven. He is the only source of worldly justice. He is the crucified Savior. He is the risen and living King of all creation who's gone to prepare a place for his followers whom he has called to carry out his work in the world until he comes. That's what I profess today. And I hope that you'll join me. Now this morning, we're going to take uh, the resurrection kind of to a different place today. And I think... Uh, I hope you'll find it helpful. Our church has been going through the book of Revelation. In Revelation, we've been talking about how it's really not primarily, at least, a list of end-time predictions written in code, but a letter to people to help Christians understand the ultimate victory of Jesus over the kingdoms of the world and how it's written to reveal and not to conceal. So that victory that we're talking about, the, the, everything we're talking about today, and the beautiful hope that awaits and exists in the hearts of Christians, and also the eternal hope that awaits us upon our death, only occurs because Jesus is alive. If Jesus stays in the grave, then evil wins. But praise be to God. He isn't dead. He is alive, and he's seated at God's right hand, coming again to judge the living and the dead and to bring his followers home to the world that God always intended for us. So we gather today and we listen to the words of the living one. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. This is a vision given to John. So picture it as a, a form of a dream with meaning, okay? Then I saw a new heaven 
in a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, this is a good one to underline, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down. When he says write it down, that means it's about to happen. Tell you what. Write this down. For what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. Where have you heard those words before? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, the lingo in there, first of all, what a jaw-dropping passage in its beauty, but but beyond that, if you start looking at the little clauses and phrases in there, you hear echoes, a lot of echoes from the Old Testament. And so when God first singles out Israel for kind of adoption as his children, that's his dream. He wants to abide with his people. He wants to have fellowship with us, not because we deserve it, but because it's who he is, because he's a God who, who cares and loves his creation. And so here, in his mind, the big win for, for him and for us is that we are together. We are now the dwelling place of God is with us. That's the big deal. That's the big draw. We have this propensity to, uh, to make movies and stuff in which, again, somebody comes back to life by kissing him. I was thinking, you know, you got Snow White, you got Sleeping Beauty, you've got uh, even more... Uh, we'll say, butch movies like The Matrix. You got Trinity kissing Neo. He comes back to life. You know, you start thinking about this. It's like, where, do we, where did we get the idea that that was plausible? I understand doing it in kids' movies maybe or something like that, but, but I think we know. We know that death is a pretty formidable foe. You know, I, I've come to the knowledge by presiding over, I don't know, dozens if not hundreds of funerals, that it takes the power of God to bring a person back to life. <laughs> it's not something you can do with a kiss. It's not something you can buy. It would take a miracle. It would take the very power of God to make it happen. Because death is a formidable foe. You ever see those heavyweight champs in boxing? You see the record next to them? It's like 45 and 1. You're like, who's the one? Who beat them? Because that, whoever that is is pretty good. They're the champ and they have that kind of record. Who, who is the one? Well, death is like a heavyweight champ whose record is everybody that's ever lived and won. That's how it's pictured in the Bible. That Jesus breaks the back of death through the resurrection. And so what this text is saying is that there's going to come a point in time where all of a sudden that is 
that's going to be flipped, and God, who has a, an undefeated record of keeping His promises and batting in His efforts at resurrection, is going to change everything to where the death that we know and that makes us grieve on days like this, even as we look forward to the resurrection, it does remind us. The more you talk about resurrection, the more you're also talking about death because you can only raise something that's dead. And so for those of you who've lost a loved one over the last year, those of you who are still mourning the loss of somebody from many, many years ago, it's hard to not be mindful of that. And yet God says that he's going to use his power and what he did through Christ to wipe out death permanently that he's going to make all things new and that that process has already begun. And he says two things that I find wonderfully reassuring. The first is write it down. And he says, write it down because I am trustworthy and true. So he's saying, I'm saying it, and as you know, based on who I am and my track record, I'm a promise keeper. And so you can count on this. And then the second, again, is it is finished. It's finished. Now, last time we heard that was on Good Friday. Right? Jesus breathes his last, says it is finished, and dies. But the resurrection then, if I'm reading a text right, isn't just amazing on its own. It's the lightning before the thunder of the final abolition of all death. And that, my friends, is the gospel. No more death. No more death. And so after Jesus says, it's finished, God raises him from the dead and declares, it is finished. And what's the it? What's finished? Well, what he says here is separation from God is finished. Death is finished. Grief and crying is finished. Here's what it says precisely again in review. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. So when Jesus says it is finished on earth, when he raises from the grave, it's finished in heaven as well. I made it to about... No, I was probably 24, 25 years old before I finally had to come to terms with death in a really, very real way. Because when you're young, you feel invincible. You don't have a lot of friends that have perished yet. But then I became a preacher. And one of my first ministries, I had just gotten to the church I was at, and one of the staff members lost a baby who had been born and just didn't make it very long. And so I was the new guy, so I didn't have to preach it, but I was there to observe and to play different roles, kind of the logistics of the funeral. So that was my first moment, was going by the coffin, little shoebox-sized coffin, and watching the grief that was there, and having to go, that's not, that's not right. That's not right. And then, you know, over the decades now, it's been going by, you know, going and, and helping as the preacher sometimes, and other times just to be there for the family, uh, sitting and, and praying with them or doing whatever, and it's uh, a suicide. 
and you, and you say to yourself, boy, that's just, it's not right. It doesn't feel right. Or the long goodbye of dementia or Alzheimer's or the um, uh, just, I remember going to my 10-year high school reunion, okay? So these are people who are in their late 20s. And they had on tripods pictures of people from our class that had died. And I thought to myself, you know, what in the world was the, the, the deal, right? That in every case, you find yourself going, don't you? Man, it ain't right. Like there's something wrong with this. Just the, that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be as long as this kind of thing is going on. But that's what God is saying here. He goes, yeah, that is finished here. That is finished here. And he goes on, he talks about, you know, we've, we've covered it here at, at NBC in the, in the previous weeks, but talks about dealing with things where injustice was the culprit in, in death and, and how he plans to handle that. And then he talks about how, I mean, again, it's not just the life or the death itself. It's all of the stuff that goes with it. No more tears. And I love the image of God wiping their tears away. Kind of what we do when, with our kids. It's a touching image. To be able to go, here, here. And, to, and to wipe the tears away. It has echoes of Mary at the tomb. Woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she says at the empty tomb. And now go forward to where we're going, right? No more tears, no more crying. And now the dwelling place of God is with man. So if you think he was taken away, well, now, now he's with you forever. The dwelling place of God is with man. That's a part of what the resurrection means. And then you keep flipping, Revelation 22. Here's what the text says. Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. There's a tree of life there, like the Garden of Eden. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerer, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright and morning star. And then get this part. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the waters of life. Now, when he says come there, it's not like a little, uh, hey, you know, you should come. Kind of a, of a, of a it's an imperative it's more like a come on, like a, like, a, like a let's go, like that kind of exclamation. Oh, are you thirsty? Come on. Brokenhearted, come on. There's, there's free water here if you're thirsty. It's an amazing, amazing, breathtaking image. And in both texts today, that phrase, if you're thirsty, you can come and drink freely from the waters of life is in both of those texts. It seems to be a preferred image, if you will, of what awaits God's people at the end 
where the thirst that's brought about by all of the stuff of this earth is finally quenched and satisfied by living in the power and presence of God where the stuff, the gunk, the plaque, if you will, of earth is finally washed out. It's a it's not a timid little offering of an invitation. It's not a hint. It's a come on. It's an imperative. And so then the images of God dwelling with his people. And I love the way that C.S. Lewis in the Narnia Chronicles as he gets toward the end and kind of the crossing over the part of his writings that sim- when he's doing the Narnia Chronicles, it symbolizes the passing from like life on earth to kind of heaven. Here's what he writes. This is like when their life in heaven is beginning. He says, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all live happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great state earth had which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. He captured it just the way that only C.S. Lewis can capture it. And so we gather here today on Easter Sunday of 2023 to proclaim that Jesus Christ, born of a virgin who performed miracles and lived a sinless life, was crucified, rose from the grave on the third day, appeared to witnesses, ascended to God's right hand, and will return one day to destroy all evil and take home his bride, which is the church. Christians also believe that while he was on earth, Jesus invites all of us who believe to have their sins forgiven and to follow him into eternal life. And so we celebrate him today not as a memory or a figment of our imaginations. We celebrate him as the risen king. And we say that beyond everything else that we long for, It's to have the fellowship of God with us, a living God, somebody who uh, died that we might have the opportunity to do so. I always wondered, what's it going to be like when you kind of enter heaven? And of course, there's a lot of, we have to speculate a little bit based on the tea leaves that scripture gives us. It's not very explicit in every case, but you definitely get kind of the characteristics of things. Uh, Bob Goff, some of you are familiar with his writings, he uh, He's a sailor, loves to sail boats, and he tells a story of, uh, as he was trying to think about what's heaven going to be like, he went on a 16-day sailing race from L.A. to Hawaii. Now, that's gung-ho. And so it's a race, and, and so he and his friends decided they'd always wanted to do it. They get on the boat, and they take off. And everything more or less starts fine, but then, as you can imagine, things begin to go wrong. They end up off course. They start running out of supplies that people start getting ill. There's all sorts of, of stuff going on. So that 16 days becomes this, this really difficult, difficult journey for them. And then he writes, there's a tradition in the Transpac race, no matter when you finish the race, even if it's 2 in the morning, when you pull into the Ala Moana Marina in Oahu, there's a guy who, no matter what time of day it is, announces the name of the boat and every crew member who made the trip. The same guy has been doing the announcing for decades. It doesn't matter if you roll in at 2.30, he's up, and he announces everybody by name. And so he gets up, and he says, 
to them, friends, it's been a long trip. Welcome home. And he calls them by name. What he doesn't do is go through, well, here's the boat that coming in two, three days after it should have. And that's because of, we'll say, uh, Bob Goff, the crummy captain that it had. Had he prepared his journey better, he would have uh, been here sooner. About time, Bob. Or, you know, uh, thinking through, well, you know, you should have packed more. You should have prepared better. You should have done this and that and the other. It's not that. It's just you're crossing the line. It's been a long trip. Welcome home. By name. And I suspect he's right. It's something like that. But can you, can you, can you as a Christian this morning, those of you who are, are Christians, go there in your mind for just a second? Can, can, can you just kind of picture what is being talked about and envisioned here at the end of Revelation, which is, comes chronologically at the end of the Bible? It's the way it ends. Just like Lewis talks about, every, every chapter is better than the one before. You know, can, can you go there with me and just, just here's God calling your name and saying, it's been a long trip. Welcome home. And now you're in my house and all that junk I gave you a little picture of it. When Jesus came out of the grave, you got a little snapshot of it. But now, that's the way it is forever. All the stuff that brings you grief here, gone. All the broken pieces of your life put back together again, like they were never broken to begin with. What a beautiful thing. What an amazing God. And what a risen Savior. We're going to gather around the table of the Lord now. And uh, I hope you got your communion elements ready. We, we do this every week here at New Vintage, but on Easter it has a little bit extra uh, to it. And I often will say, right before we take it, welcome to the table of the Lord. And I like that expression because, A, it's invitational, and, and that's the way that the text reads this morning. He's saying, come on. Come, come to God's house. And so this morning I'm saying to you here, come on to the table, to the Lord's table. We take the bread in the cup, which represents the body and blood of Jesus, the risen one. And it's a reminder that just as he tells his disciples, he won't share that meal again until he takes it with us, with them in glory. So it'll be with us. And so this morning, we celebrate our risen Savior and we celebrate where we're heading as a result of his resurrection. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, for the table of the Lord, for you calling us home, for the invitation of heaven that pulls us forward, 
for the promise of no more death, no more grief, no more crying, no more tears. Father, for that promise, we give you thanks. And so, Father, now as we take the bread and the cup, we remember Jesus whose resurrection makes it all possible, and we pray this in his holy name. Amen.